Some of our friends aren't saved. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Some of our friends aren't saved. Some people we work with aren't saved. Some members of our family, our extended family, our in-laws, our outlaws, aren't saved. Why do I mention this? Apart from the fact that it's true. Because I woke up and it was November. I woke up and, and the e-bulletin is full of Thanksgiving this and Christmas that. I woke up and you woke up and we woke up in this season with opportunities, more opportunities than we usually have to spend time with unsaved family, extended family, neighbors, co-workers. It's Thanksgiving. Before long, it's Christmas. It's New Year. It's, di it's dinners. It's gatherings. It's parties. It's more invitations than we know what to do with, which is why the men's ministry is smart. You want to be smart hanging out with the men's ministry because they say, no, no. January. January will be fine for a gathering. February, even better. Groundhog's Day. Save the date. Because we already have more invitations than we can fit into our calendar. More probably than we want to. Introverts say amen. <laughs> but this creates a dilemma for us, for all of us, introverts and extroverts alike. Because on the one hand, Jesus tells us, tells all of us, go into the world to make disciples. That's his instruction, that's his commandment to all of us. On the other hand, some of the gatherings that people want us to go to are going to be very much in the world. The, world, the word holiday, you know this, comes from holy day. That's not hard. But you know there's not much holy about some of the stuff we're going to be invited to this unholy day season but jesus said go into all the world he said to be like him and wasn't he the one who dined with sinners and saints we sang last week ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes so maybe we should accept some of those invitations maybe we should show up at some of those parties except then there's paul and paul says he makes a point of telling us that's not who we are anymore 1 Corinthians 6.10, drunkards and revelers won't inherit the kingdom of God. So we're some of you, Paul says, but not anymore. You're not those people anymore. Don't be those people anymore. Peter says the same thing. We've spent enough time, Peter says, 1 Peter 4.3, we've spent enough time in revelries and drinking parties. We've spent enough time already living like people who don't know Jesus. Let's not throw good time after bad. So what do we do? What's the right answer? How do we navigate all of our various options and invitations this holiday season? There's actually some insight waiting for us in Romans 8 this morning as we press forward, as we leave finally Romans chapter 1. If it were up to me, I would stay in Romans, uh, I'm sorry, I said chapter 1, I meant chapter 8 verse 1, where we've spent two weeks already. And I would be happy to spend more time there. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We spent two weeks on that. We haven't remotely plumbed the depths of that verse. I said to someone on Thursday, I could preach on that verse every week 
for a year. We could study together. We could unpack that verse. We could delve deep into it for a, for a year, and we wouldn't run out of things to talk about. But Paul doesn't stay in verse 1 forever. He's got 38 more verses in chapter 8, eight more chapters after chapter 8. Paul keeps going. We should keep going. We should see what else he has to say. Romans 8, there is, one more time, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, because we said two weeks ago the rest of what looks like verse 1 in our New King James really shouldn't be there. It's a copyist error. It doesn't show up in the oldest manuscripts. It doesn't show up in the writings of the early church fathers quoting Romans 8.1. So we know it's a typo. So we keep going. In verse 2, this is where Paul is going. This is, he tells us where he's going. He says immediately, For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Boy, he's not, he's not waiting. Verse 1 was already this glorious declaration. Verse 2, Paul just starts building on it. He's not restating it, paraphrasing it. He's not even amplifying it. He's, he's expanding it. He's, he's taking that declaration and he's running with it. He's telling us, not only have we been declared not guilty of our sin, as if that wasn't enough, but verse 2, he says, we've been freed from our sin. Verse 1, we're freed from the penalty of sin. Verse 2, freed from the power of sin. And he's just getting going. But already, this is amazing. Ponder this for a moment. Don't take it for granted. Sit with it. In the flesh, in our flesh, yours and mine, sin was inevitable. People in the world say, okay, there's two things you'll never get away from, death and taxes. Paul's version, in the flesh, two things impossible to avoid, death and sin. We were born sinners, natural born sinners, every one of us, born with a sin nature. Born with us in nature, so we sin. That's just what it was to be born into this world. The law of our flesh, Paul says, was the law of sin and death. It governed us, ruled over us. But in Christ, we've been liberated from that law. Analogy. Loud noise coming. If I let go of this water bottle, it falls. Okay, I didn't warn first service. And now I wish I hadn't warned you. But, but if I let go of the water bottle, it falls. Why? It's governed by the law of gravity. Gravity rules over the water bottle. But if you talk to Ben, if you talk to Clayton, if you talk to Greg, if you talk to some of the engineers in the church, they can tell you if you put wings right here and fins just so and put an engine in the back, and you do all of that the right way, obviously, you'll turn the water bottle into something that can fly. With the right technology... You can overcome the law of gravity. That's the analogy. Add the right wings and fins and engine to something, you can overcome the law of gravity. Add the Holy Spirit to someone, and you can overcome the law of sin and death. Let's keep going. For what the law could not do, verse 3, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Paul just said a lot, but what it boils down to, the law couldn't save us, certainly couldn't expect it to sanctify us. If the law couldn't rescue us from hell, there's no way it was ever going to make us holy. 
But what the law couldn't do, Jesus did do. Where our flesh failed, Jesus succeeded. So today, in Christ, if we're in Christ, if we've accepted Christ, we can do what we couldn't do before. Today, we who are in Christ can succeed where previously, inevitably, we failed. We can live holy lives. Okay, that's kind of Christianese, Patrick. What does that mean? It means we can live lives pleasing to God. Still not getting it. What does that mean? We can live lives that fulfill the law of God. Okay, that's more confusing, not less confusing. What does it mean to fulfill the law of God? Well, what did Jesus say that it meant? What did Jesus say the law comes down to? He said, strip it down to its bare essentials. It all comes down to two things. What are they? Love God, love people. Love God, love others. And so fulfill the law of Christ. What Paul is saying then, verses 3 and 4, if today we are in Christ, if we've said yes to Jesus and his offer of forgiveness that he purchased on the cross, today we get to do the thing we were created to do. The thing we were designed to do. The thing that God always intended for us to do, but we never were able to do. We can live lives loving God and loving people in his name. Do we always do that? No. All doesn't mean all. But can we always do it? Can we always choose to love God and love others? Now we can. In Christ we can. And going forward from verse 5 on, Paul's going to talk about that choice. This morning, though, I want to pause right here. And I want to assume that we've made that choice, and I want to ask, what does that choice look like? Loving God, and especially loving others. What does that look like in the context we were talking about a moment ago? What does it look like to love our unsaved friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers the way we're called to, the way that we're supposed to, the way that we get to this holiday season when a lot of those people are going to have really different concepts of what love and rejoicing and Thanksgiving and Christmas are all about? What do we do? I think a lot of the answer comes from the beginning of verse 3. What the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son, underline this, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's our campsite this morning. That's home base. The likeness of sinful flesh. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Let's unpack this a little bit. The word likeness is really important to begin with. And it's controversial, because the important things always are. The Gnostics and their modern-day descendants, the, the cultists, want us to believe that Jesus came in the likeness of flesh. And they've got whole doctrines and theologies built around the idea that Jesus wasn't corporeal. His body wasn't solid. It was spirit. It looked like a body, but it really wasn't. And we know better than that. We know that's nonsense. We know, yes, God is spirit, but we know also Jesus is God who came, how? In the flesh. Flesh like our flesh had to be so that he could die in the flesh for our sin. Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Flesh just like our flesh, except for one little thing. 
which turns out to be an enormous thing. He didn't have a sin nature. Came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Came as close as he could come to being like us, except he wasn't sinful like us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. Had no sin nature, no sinfulness found in him. No sin in his life, not ever. And it had to be that way. Had to be that way. If Jesus had his own sin, he wouldn't be able to die for our sin. He needed to be exactly who he was, a lamb without spot or blemish. Because that's what qualified him to be a perfect sacrifice for us. He had no sin of his own to die for. He was eligible to die for ours. He could be punished in our place, crucified for our sin. Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, having a resemblance to it, but didn't become it. Sent in the likeness of sinful flesh without any, in any way, shape, or form sinning. Does the way that Jesus was sent into the world have anything to do with the way that you and I are sent into the world? Of course it does. As the Father sent me, Jesus says, John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, I also send you on the same mission in the same manner. And people like to quibble about what that means. I don't think it's hard. Paul just made it quite clear. Jesus was sent into the world. Jesus was sent to sinners like you and me in the likeness of sinful flesh. Didn't come as a sinner. But here's point number one. And there's going to be seven this morning. Didn't come as a Pharisee either. He came appearing to be on a level with us, not lording over us, not lording his holiness over the people he was sent to. Unlike the Pharisees, he could have. Jesus could have shown up and flexed because he really was as pure and undefiled as the Pharisees claimed to be. The Pharisees said, oh, look at us. Look how, look how clean we are. And Jesus says, yeah, clean on the outside, filthy on the inside. Whitewashed tombs. Jesus was pure within and without. His thoughts, his actions, his methods, his motives, his heart, his hands, all perfect, all undefiled, all holy. But see, that's not what Jesus led with, is it? That's not how he introduced himself. He didn't show up and declare the distance between his divinity and our depravity. He didn't show up and say, hey, I'm holy and spiritual, and no, you're not. He was known, in fact, notorious, if you want to use that word, for being just the opposite, wasn't he? He was Emmanuel, God with us. John says that he lived, he tabernacled among us. He came looking like one of us, because he was, in every way but sin. He came to befriend us. Here's point number two. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Second thing that it is to come in the likeness of sinful flesh is you make friends with flesh that is sinful. If you look in the footnotes of your study Bible, where that phrase, friend of sinners, shows up. It's Matthew eleven nineteen, and it's Luke 7, 34. Your footnote will say something like, he identified with sinners. He identified with those he came to bless, those he came to save. If you don't have a study Bible, you should get a study Bible, because there's cool stuff like that in there. 
But that's how Jesus led off when, when he tabernacled among us. That's how he, he tended to roll up on people, how he engaged with people, how he connected with them and related to them. He emphasized the likeness, the alikeness between himself and them, between himself and us, between his flesh and our flesh. We're people together. We're alike, you and me. Not the same. He wasn't a sinner, never claimed to be a sinner. But he said, hey, we're alike. We've got a lot in common. And we'd have even more in common if you'd follow me and let me help you with the whole sin thing. You've heard me, you've heard me talk before, most of you, about doing ministry in New York City in the days and weeks following September 11th. And seeing people rolling in, pronouncing, this was God's judgment on America for abandoning Israel. This was divine judgment against America for her sexual immorality. This was God's hand of wrath against America for her national sin of abortion. And on and on. And, and, and no. <laughs> okay, first, first of all, no, it wasn't. How do I know? Because if it had been God's judgment, there wouldn't be anything left. Read Isaiah, read Zephaniah, read Revelation. When God judges, there's nothing left. Was it God's chastening? Was it corrective discipline? Was it a warning? I don't know, maybe, depends when you ask me. But, 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 but here's what I know. We, we can talk, we can speculate. Here's what I know. That's not a way to start a conversation, what happened on 9-11 was God's holy wrath on unrighteous sinners, and that's nothing comparing to the wrath that's waiting for you if you die without repenting. That's not a way to start a conversation if you really want to have a conversation. The only, and I saw people try, you know, I, I heard that pronounced, declared, shouted a lot. And I only saw two things happen in response. One, I saw people spin around and shout back. I saw it start a shouting match more than once. What I saw much more often is someone look over their shoulder and say, religious freak, and walk away. You nut, you weirdo. And, and when I try to ask these people, these brothers and sisters who had come to the city to minister, what do you, what do you hope to accomplish starting a conversation that way? Well, now they've heard the truth. Did my job, I told them the truth. Now it's up to them. They can turn or they can burn. Repent or die. The people who are having productive conversations, though, the, 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 what we would call evangelical discussions, who, who, who actually got to talk to people about God's love, even in the midst of, of evil and the mercy of the cross, even in the middle of destruction and the forgiveness that's available to everyone and all oh, the importance of making that decision and making it soon because we were just reminded that no one's promised tomorrow. The conversations that were about Jesus were started by people who started the conversations like Jesus, who came alongside rather than coming against, who started often with questions rather than pronouncements or declarations. Questions like, hey, where, where were you when it happened? Who did you know? Did you lose someone? Questions that asked without necessarily asking, hey, what do we have in common? How are we alike? What likeness do we bear? 
There's point number three. To come in the likeness of sinful flesh is to look for a likeness. Some people talk about this kind of evangelism as earning the right to share Jesus. I don't think that's it exactly. Because it's what Jesus did, and Jesus didn't have to earn the right to do nothing to nobody. (laughs) Jesus was God. He created the universe. He didn't need to earn anything, prove anything. But it's still what he did. He still came alongside us. Struck up conversations that were about us. He built bridges in order to connect with us. My favorite example, not the only one, just my favorite one, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You know the story. Jesus detours. The disciples go to find lunch. He's hanging out at a well. A Samaritan woman comes. He starts a conversation. Two things to, to grab hold of and hang on to from that story. The first, Jesus went way out of his way to talk to her. If you, if you look at where Jesus was and where he was headed, this was a major detour through Samaria. He made a point of going to where she was. And he not only went out of his way geographically, he went out of his way demographically. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. According to Jewish culture, he had no business talking to her. But he went out of his way to do exactly that. Second thing to to grab hold of, when they got to the same place, when Jesus put himself in the same place, he didn't lead with condemnation. He didn't immediately say, so, what is this, guy number six that you're in sin with? No, he started a conversation with her about what? Water. Hey, you're dropping a bucket into the well. Can Can I have some water? He started off observing, hey, We've got this humanity in common. He started a conversation, and a conversation that resulted in her having hope. A conversation that resulted in her going to her village and sharing that hope with others. Woman at the Well is a good example. It's my favorite example. We can't go into the world and make disciples the way that we're called to, told to, if we don't go into the world. If we don't go where the sinners are, if we don't engage with people who aren't the same as us, if we don't seek out people who don't already believe and don't already worship the way that we worship, we are how God has chosen to reach the world. There's no shortage of the ways that he could do it. But we're sent into the world on a mission to be used of God to draw people to him. We're sent into the world for the same reason Jesus was sent into the world, to seek the lost, that they might be saved. Point number four, to be sent in the likeness of sinful flesh is to be sent. To not answer that call, to not go into the world, that would be like a doctor who says, yeah, I don't see patients. A mechanic who says, yeah, with the garage and the tools, not so much. It'd be like a farmer saying, yeah, I don't work with plants or animals. Not so fast, Patrick, you're saying, hey, 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 hey. The analogy doesn't work because the mechanic or the farmer aren't going to be corrupted by the work that they do. I can't go to where the sinners are or I might fall into sin. Okay, I hear you, fair point. Set aside the farmer and the mechanic. Let's stick with the analogy of the doctor because it's one that Jesus uses and it's probably closer. Farmer probably not corrupted by 
by cattle and, 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 and crops. Mechanic, not infected by the machines he works on, but a doctor can be. A nurse can be. So what do they do? They take precautions. They don't go into an infectious situation unequipped or unprepared. You see the analogy. Yeah, it would be foolish for a new believer who's still figuring out who they are in Christ and doesn't know thing one about the armor of Christ to go anywhere near sin. To go anywhere near sinners, to go anywhere near especially the sin that they used to enjoy or the people that they used to enjoy it with. And we know people who have tried to do that. And we've seen the tragic results. The person who goes into the bar too soon tries to rescue all of the alcoholics. Tries to share Jesus with the people who were just like him. The person who goes out late at night too quickly, trying to share Jesus with the other streetwalkers too soon, with the people who are just like her. Yeah, we need to, here's your next point, go wisely. To be sent is to be sent wisely. We've seen people go unwisely, and so we're rightly cautious of it, and we, and we are careful to warn new believers about it. We're careful to, to, to remind each other, hey, you might never be strong enough to engage people caught up in the same sin that you used to sin, in the same place that you used to sin it. I wonder sometimes, some of you know, when God called us to Wichita, we were thinking, we were praying about planting a church in Minneapolis. I wonder sometimes if the reason God said, no, 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 Wichita is Minneapolis is where my sin really like went up to 11. <laughs> I, was, I was a sinner in New Jersey, Minneapolis, I took it to a whole new level. Did God know that being there wouldn't be wise for me? Maybe. But number five, being sent means being sent wisely. Here's the thing, though. Knowing that there's places and people and situations that aren't wise for you, for me, doesn't mean not going at all. Yeah, there are places where we can look and we can say, yeah, Odds are that the influence could start flowing the wrong direction. Instead of pulling someone up, I'd get pulled down. But that's not the same as hunkering down and hiding from all of the sin in the world and all the sinners in the world. At some point, we've got to ask ourselves what we really believe. Is he who is in us greater than he who is in the world or not? The power that lives in us is the power that raised Jesus from the grave. At some point, we've got to decide what we think about that. At some point, we just need to decide to believe that and trust it and go out in it, out in that power to where the sinners are. Wisely, yes. But we need to go. We're supposed to. We have to, if you think about it. If all we do as Christ followers is spend time with other Christ followers, how are there ever going to be more Christ followers? Well, I guess that's God's problem. I've had people say that to me. Where are the new Christ followers going to come from? I guess that's God's problem. Except Paul just said to us, it's not God's problem, it's our privilege. The righteous requirement of the law, verse 4, is fulfilled how again? By loving God and loving people. And put them both together, loving people to God. By going to them. Not waiting for them to stumble into a church. 
That was never likely, and it's less and less likely with every passing year, with every passing month. No, we need to go to them, not learning over them, emphasizing our resemblance to them. Hey, we have things in common, a job, a hobby, a neighborhood, a friend, a team, and oh, one thing, a desperate need for Jesus. Is there a limit to how far we go? Of course there is. We need to not be in a position where instead of lifting someone up, they're dragging us down. That also means we need to not be in a position where we drag ourselves down. Here's point number six. We're never called to sin in order to rescue someone from sin. We're not called to drag ourselves down, dive down, wallow around in an effort to save people from sin. We're sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's very different than being flesh that's actually sinful. Point number six. And I know it sounds obvious. Yeah, don't sin in service of salvation. Okay, got it. But, but, but see, it's, it's become popular in some church circles among some very influential churches and church leaders, in fact, to take this idea, Jesus, friend of sinners, and run with it. Just one example, and, and there are many. You've, you've heard about bivocational pastors who are strippers. That's, that's their day job. If you haven't, it's true. Don't look it up. Just take my word for it. Churches meeting in bars. More and more common happens here in Wichita, in fact. Churches meeting in bars and taverns or home churches that revolve around everybody sharing their home-brewed microbrew. Because we're here, this is the logic, we're here to build a bridge to the world, and what better bridge than beer? Beer is universal. Ben Franklin said, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. That's a real quote. Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Two problems. One, Ben wasn't a Christian. Two, that's not the gospel. Oh, but Jesus loved a good party. That's the rebuttal. Yeah, Jesus loved a good party. He'd, he'd go and he'd hang out with the prostitutes and the pornographers and the drunks and the druggies. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, it says so in the Bible. Be careful. We've got, we've got to watch that we don't take a, tr a true fact, a biblical concept, and a really wonderful one, by the way. Jesus, friend of sinners, is, 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 is wonderful. But we need to be careful not to impute our own meaning to that. We, we, we can't twist it into what we want it to mean or, or what we think it should mean. We've, we've got to see what Scripture actually says. We can't just say, oh, that would make a good bumper sticker. And anytime anybody says anything, I'm just going to take that one verse and I'm going to wield it like a club and smack them batter anyone who dares to disagree what does scripture say what did, what, what is what does jesus mean when he says that he's a friend of sinners there's a bunch of places in the gospel that give us an answer because there's a bunch of places in the gospel where jesus is accused of being too carnal of not being spiritual enough resembling the world too much running with the wrong crowd eating with the wrong people Luke's gospel is, is, is probably the best place to go. It's, it's the best one-stop shopping, certainly. Because, and, and go ahead and turn there. That's why I wanted you to have a Bible in your hand. Because, because Dr. Luke, of the four gospel writers, Luke is interested in Jesus, the Son of Man. Luke, more than the other three gospel writers, talks about Jesus' humanity. 
So we could go some different places. We'll, we'll, we'll camp out in Luke. And we'll look at some places like Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors in Luke 5, anointed by the prostitute in Luke 7, eating with tax collectors and sinners again in Luke 15, and the story of Zacchaeus going home to eat with him in Luke 19. Preview, there's some things that these episodes all have in common. One, they're all true. Yeah, Jesus hung out with sinners. He didn't observe the fusty, fastidious barriers between Jew and Gentile, worthy and unworthy, clean and filthy, holy and unholy. He went to where the people were. First thing that these stories have in common, every one of them, Jesus gets up close and personal with sinners. If, if your mission is to seek and save the lost, it's sort of inevitable. Second thing they have in common, Jesus didn't get up close and personal with sin. Every time we see Jesus in a social setting with sinners, that was by definition an opportunity to walk according to the flesh. Jesus never did. He enjoyed a great good meal. He never drank to excess. Never got drunk, never got buzzed. Enjoyed people, but he never told inappropriate stories. Never laughed at off-color jokes. Eh, it's not really funny, but I want to fit in. Never gossiped. Never, never criticized people who weren't there. Never made fun of people who were there. Yeah, he hung out with sinners. He didn't sin. He put himself in opportunities where, where sin was there for the taking, but he never sinned. More than that, let's take it a step further. We never once read about Jesus sitting still, saying nothing, doing nothing, while sin happened around him. Jesus never hung out with sinners who were sinning. Because if he had, what would be the result? Yeah, you know, I got wasted. Jesus didn't have a problem. We were there doing shots of Johnny, and, and in, Jesus just sat in the corner drinking his Diet Coke, laughing at us. Yeah, he was cool with it. In all the time we read about Jesus spending time with sinners, he never indulges in sin himself, and he never gives anyone an excuse for thinking he's okay with sin. He never just hangs out while sin is happening around him, giving tacit approval to the sin that's going on. Instead, what does he do? Doesn't walk according to the flesh. He does, Romans 8, 4, walk according to the Spirit. What do we say that means? He takes the opportunity every time to love all the people. How? This is point number seven. He tells them the truth of the gospel. Walking in likeness of sinful flesh means sharing the opportunity to be saved from the sin and sinfulness of our flesh. Turn with me to Luke 5. I, I, I want you to put eyes on this. Hopefully you have your own Bible. You can underline some things. You can jot some things in the margin. Luke 5, we catch up with Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, except I don't think he was. Because I don't think Jesus ever just hung out. I think everything that Jesus did ever was with a purpose. What's his purpose here? Go to Luke 5, 27. Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi. We know him better as Matthew. And he says, yo, Levi, follow me. Come with me. We got stuff to do. And he does. Levi, later known as Matthew, does. Then what happens, verse 29, then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. There were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Which is when, verse 30, the scribes and Pharisees complained saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What's the answer to the question? Levi invited them. 
He did what Andrew did. Andrew met Jesus. The first thing he did was go tell his brother Peter. Levi met Jesus. He wanted his friends and family, the people that he worked with and hung out with, to know Jesus too. Jesus wasn't just there for a party. He was there bringing his presence to people who needed it. Flip ahead to Luke 7. And when you get there, look at verse 36. Luke 7, this is where Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. People often say, oh, he's anointed by a prostitute. Could be, probably is. The scripture doesn't say that specifically. Whatever her sin, the Pharisees object. Verse 39, <laughs> how does he let her touch him? If he was really a prophet, he'd know who she were, who she was. And if he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. What happens next? When Jesus is, is, is anointed, when the sinful woman lays hands on him, what's next is Jesus launches into a parable about forgiveness. And at the end of the story, verse 50, he says to the woman, go in peace, your faith has saved you. Why was Jesus letting the woman touch him, anoint him? He was there for her. Flip forward to Luke 15. Luke 15, once more, verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners drew near. Once more, verse 2, scribes and Pharisees complained. Man receives sinners and eats with them. This time Jesus lays three parables on them. Not just one, three. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. What's the point of all three? All <laughs> they were all lost. And God delighted when they were found. The point of all three, you might not remember lost sheep, lost coin. You remember the prodigal son. God seeks after sinners and rejoices when they return. God joys over repentance. Why am I here with sinners and tax collectors? Because I'm talking to them about the opportunity that they'll have to repent. Flip forward to Luke 19. Different song, same beat. Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Rich tax collector named Zacchaeus hears about Jesus, wants to know what all the shouting is about. Problem is he's short. Climbs a tree so he can see. When Jesus gets to where Zacchaeus is, verse 5, he says, Zach, get down out the tree. Let's go eat. No way to read this without understanding, again, Jesus is seeking out one particular guy. Jesus is laser-focused on saving that sinner. Once again, crowd doesn't like it. Verse 7, because tax collectors were abusive. They were, they were evil. Zacchaeus, probably no exception. They complain, verse 7, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner, but how does the story end? Verse 8, Zacchaeus publicly repents. Verse 9, Jesus says that's what's supposed to happen. Today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost and that's what happened here today. Four stories, they're all true. Four stories, they're all encounters with sinners, but not with sin. They were all opportunities to sin, opportunities that could have brought forth sin. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not the law of sin and death. The law of love and life. When Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors, he didn't partake of sin, didn't ignore sin, didn't pre pretend to not see the sin happening around him. What he did every time, every time, was speak about forgiveness of sin. 
Interesting, other than when the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees got in his face, we don't often see Jesus starting a conversation about sin. Not never. When it was time to flip tables, he flipped tables. He didn't shy away from calling sin, sin. But it's interesting, if someone wasn't waving it in his face, it wasn't the first thing he brought up. Didn't shy away from the conversation, but he wasn't looking for it either necessarily. What he was looking for and what he always found wasn't an opportunity to say, well, you know what God thinks about this sin. You know what God has to say about that sin. No, what, what he was looking for and what he always found was an opportunity to talk about forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin and reconciliation with God that we ran away from in our sin. And we've got friends who need to hear that. We've got friends who don't know about forgiveness. We've got neighbors who have never experienced freedom. We've got brothers and sisters and in-laws and outlaws and cousins under condemnation because they don't know that reconciliation with God is possible. And they need to. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing but condemnation for those who aren't. For those who still are the enemies of God that you and I once were. Nothing but condemnation for those who don't just resemble sinful flesh, but who are still sinful flesh. And, and, and here's the thing. Between now and the end of the year, those unsaved people in your lives, some of them at least, are going to do something weird. They're going to invite you to their house. They're going to accept your invitation to come to your house. They're going to sit next to you at the work Christmas party. They're going to come up to you and they're going to say, hey, I'm a secret Santa. What do we do with these opportunities? We go in likeness of sinful flesh. We go, point one, not as Pharisees, not lording over. We go, point two, as friends. We go, point three, asking, hey, how are we alike? Seeking to build a bridge. We go knowing we're supposed to, knowing we're sent into the world, not put off by the fact that there's icky sinners there. We go, point five, wisely, lest we fall into sin ourselves. We go in likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh, not sinning and not approving, not winking or ignoring. And by the way, not staying if it's impossible to stay without giving silent approval. But we go, point seven, speaking the truth about forgiveness. Sympathizing with sinners, because we recognize their sin for what it is. It's an attempt by broken people to cope with a painful world. And maybe they don't do it the same way that we did, but they do it for the same reason we did, because they're still governed by the law of sin and death, the way that we once were. And when they leave that party, that meal, that celebration, that gathering, that whatever, unless something happens, they're going to leave the way they came. Unless something happens, they won't leave any different. Unless someone does for them what someone did for us. Unless someone shares with them the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Unless someone shows them how to fly instead of how to crash. 
because they already know how to crash. You know, it's interesting. I, I can't think of a single example in the Bible where Jesus gets up from a meal and leaves unrepentant sinners behind. Judas got up, left Jesus behind, but nowhere do I read of one unrepentant person being left behind at the end of a meal with Jesus. What does that say? I don't think Jesus ever had a meal where the subject of repentance didn't come up. I'm sure that somewhere, at some point along the way, someone didn't repent. Feeding of the 5,000, probably some of those 5,000 hadn't made up their mind about Jesus. But even then, if, even if that's true, and we don't know that it is, it's, 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 it's the exception that proves the rule. Because we know no one left that meal without being challenged with the reality of who Jesus was. He took a few rolls and a few sardines, and he fed 5,000. This is who I am. I've come to save you. Is, is that the heart that we take into the meals and the celebrations that we attend? This is who Jesus is. He came to save us. He came in likeness of sinful flesh, not to sin or affirm sin or ignore sin, but also not to leave people in their sin. He came in likeness of sinful flesh to show people there's an alternative to sin. To tell people, I'm going to make a provision for sin. To invite people, you can be forgiven of sin. And, and, and the thought I would leave you with is that every table we sit at this Thanksgiving, every gathering that we're a part of this Christmas, every party that we go to this new year and into the new year is an opportunity for us to do the same. Father, we come back to that word all. And we say, I surrender all, and oh, we want to mean it. We want to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We want to share your love. We want to share the cross with every living creature. We know we don't. We haven't. but can we share it with more? Can we share it with another? Can we share it not never? Our flesh wants to get along. Our flesh wants to fit in. Our flesh wants to be accepted and liked. And we know that getting close enough to wash feet is close enough to get kicked in the nose. But Lord, speak to our hearts about more. Because you died for all of the sin of all of the world. Expand our borders, Lord. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Minister faith, give us boldness to speak of the forgiveness and the freedom that we found in you.